Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. And uh, as the student ministry pastor, I can confirm that what Heather said is true. Our adult volunteers are definitely more excited about the Oasis Winter Experience, the middle school retreat, than the students themselves are. So a lot of the students are like, man, this is a long way away. This is overnight. It's going to be real cold. And all the volunteers are so psyched to get away, eat good food, not have to cook, not have to clean. So it's going to be a blast. And we have over 20 students signed up already, and I'm hopeful over the next few days as this deadline pushes closer, we'll get several more. But really looking forward to it. But as I said, my name's C.T. Eldridge. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to share with you from God's Word. This morning, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing this sermon series that we've titled, Into Focus. And in these sermons, we're looking at Mark's Gospel, chapters 8 through 10. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, it's about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. The beginning of the New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, then the Gospel of Mark. And by the time Easter hits, I think we'll actually edge our way into Mark chapter 11. But for now, we're just working our way through section by section, Mark chapters 8 through 10. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. But as we get started today, I want us to think about the context within which Mark chapters 8 through 10 fall. So if you remember back from a couple of weeks ago, as Billy shared with us, the first seven chapters of Mark's gospel are action-packed and high-paced. Scene after scene shows Jesus in action, calling his first disciples, healing the man with an unclean spirit, curing the fever of Peter's mother-in-law, along with many others who were brought to him. Restoring the man with a withered, leprous hand. And these few examples take place in chapter 1 alone. But the pace and intensity continues like this through the next six chapters. But towards the end of chapter 8, the pace starts to slow down. And the tempo lessens quite a bit. And in these chapters, Jesus begins his fateful journey toward Jerusalem, a journey that's going to last all the way to the end of chapter 10. And so across these three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, as Jesus travels to Jerusalem, he uses the travel time with his disciples very intentionally. And this made me think about the end of last summer in August Meg and I traveled up north for a few days, just the two of us, William and Charlie, our four-year-old and two-year-old, stayed here with their grandparents, and Meg and I got to stay in an amazing house that belongs to some of our friends in Harbor Springs, overlooking Grand Traverse Bay. We got to visit downtown Petoskey and Bay Harbor, where we were married several years ago. We ate awesome food. We rode bikes through town. We saw amazing boats in the harbors. It was an exciting trip. But you know, despite all of the really neat things we got to do, 
The thing we enjoyed most about the trip, or at least the thing I enjoyed most about the trip, was the chance for Meg and I to focus on one another. Because life is so go, go, go. Our two young boys, everything going on around the house and at work, it's just nonstop. But as Meg and I made the journey and left life behind for a few days, the pace slowed down. And we were able to focus on one another in a unique way. That's one of the things that's great about traveling together. It's not just the cool place you're going to visit or the neat things that you're going to get to do, but that you get to spend focused time with your friends or family or whoever you're traveling with. Well, so it is for Jesus with his disciples They're beginning to leave behind all of the activity and ministry of Galilee. And Jesus uses this focused travel time with his disciples very intentionally. As they journey, he slows down and becomes very deliberate to make sure his disciples are crystal clear on who he is and what it means to follow him. They had seen him do all the miracles. They had heard his authoritative teaching. But they are still crucially mistaken about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. There is still so much more that needs to come into focus for them. And Jesus uses this travel time to do just that. So in the first two sermons of this series... Billy taught us from the end of chapter 8, as Jesus and the disciples begin their journey. There we saw that the 12 disciples do understand that Jesus is the Christ. He's the chosen one, the promised one. He's the long-awaited Savior of God's people. But what they fail to understand is that the Christ, the Messiah, must also suffer. And the disciples fail to understand that all who follow the Messiah must do likewise. Jesus says they must deny themselves. Whoever would follow me must pick up his cross. He says whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. This is a hard saying. Kind of a downer for the disciples to hear. However, Jesus ends that section with more promising words. Chapter 9, verse 1. This is the last verse from our last sermon. There, Mark writes, chapter 9, verse 1, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Aha! So that whole cross-bearing, self-denial thing sounded kind of harsh. But hey, he said that some of us standing here before we die are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. So you can just imagine the disciples thinking, all right, this is going to be awesome. The Roman Empire is about to get jacked up. We're going to take back Jerusalem. Political and economic justice, spiritual renewal, the kingdom of God. And we're going to see it, Jesus said. 
Well, that's where we pick up today in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. That's where we join his disciples as they travel towards Jerusalem. So I'll read these verses for us. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, Peter, James, and John no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged Peter, James, and John to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so Peter, James, and John asked Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. C.S. Lewis was an Anglican author and theologian, really. He lived mostly during the first half of the 20th century in England, and his most influential nonfiction book was titled Mere Christianity. He wrote these chapters to be delivered as radio broadcasts on BBC Radio from 1941 through 1945, so at the height of the Second World War. And the following lines are from a chapter on Jesus in this book, Mere Christianity. And these lines are probably the most well-known and impactful from the entire book. Lewis writes, A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being merely a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to do so. Who is Jesus to you? When you hear his name, when he comes to your mind, what do you think about? This is a question we believe is of eternal significance. This is a question Jesus himself posed to his disciples from our first sermon in this series. Who do you say that I am? And as Lewis points out, this is a question we cannot punt on. The radical things Jesus said, the extraordinary things Jesus did, force us to decide whether he's a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. So who is Jesus to you? Well, Mark's purpose in chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, is to help us come to a conclusion here. The events and the dialogue that take place provide an answer to this question that is both wonderful and perplexing. What we discover is that Jesus is the glorified Son who is also the suffering Son. So let's investigate the details of this scene, and as we do so, it opens our eyes to three essential realities about who Jesus is. First, wake up to see the unveiled glory of Jesus. So in verses 2 through 3, Mark begins this scene writing, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, many of us perhaps are familiar with the idea that Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 disciples who would eventually become the 12 apostles. Now, Jesus had many followers, many disciples, but these 12 were his closest. These 12 were the ones who were to lead the church whenever Jesus' time on earth was done. But even among the 12 disciples, Jesus had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. These three were like the team captains among the 12 disciples. All 12 of the disciples were on the team, but Peter, James, and John were singled out as leaders among leaders. And so these three often had privileged access to Jesus and his ministry. So for instance, if we looked back at Mark chapter 5, there's a man there named Jairus whose daughter is deathly sick. And so Jairus seeks Jesus out. He brings Jesus to heal his daughter. But the sick room where the little girl lies ill is overcrowded with people. Maybe nurses and doctors and others mourning for this girl. So instead of bringing along all 12 of the disciples, Mark tells us that Jesus brings into the sick room only Peter, James, and John. And these three men, 
then have the special opportunity to witness Jesus bring the little girl back from the dead. Well, likewise here, Jesus heads up the mountain with his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and it makes us wonder what special opportunity lies ahead for these three. With their privileged access to Jesus, what amazing thing will they witness next? Let's see, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So without any warning, Jesus is transformed into this dazzling, otherworldly brightness. His human form is apparently still discernible, but now he radiates beams of light. Now, seeing Jesus transformed like this, imagine how the three disciples feel. So, granted, this is on a much smaller level, but this made me think about some of the reactions I had looking at Christmas cards that we received last month leading up to Christmas. You know how it goes these days. Christmas cards are really more of a portrait than a card, a portrait of the family who's sending you the card. And especially in the cards from our friends with children, I would see the pictures of our friends' children and think, wow, what an amazing transformation. We knew these kids when they were infants, when they were two or three years old. And now look at them. They're huge. He's taller than his dad. She's a full-grown woman. Meg will be especially stunned when she sees the Christmas card of a family for whom she used to babysit. These little children who Meg got to care for, and now we've got their Christmas card of the child wearing a cap and gown at college graduation. What a transformation! And because we haven't seen these people in a long time, it's like the transformation happened overnight. We're just stunned. So imagine those disciples. One moment, they're reaching the top of the mountain, talking with Jesus, and then he's transformed. And the glory of his body is so extreme, Mark adds that his clothes shine intensely white. And then he puts in this little detail, so white as no one on earth could bleach them. And now I think Mark adds that little detail to show us the significance of Jesus shining so brightly. No one on earth could bleach clothes so as to make them shine so bright. Aha! Because Jesus is not from earth. He's from heaven. Peter, James, and John witness, they see the heavenly radiance because that is where he is from. The veil is lifted from his earthly form, and these three get a glimpse of Jesus' majesty and power. Wake up to the unveiled glory 
of Jesus? Or will you go on seeing him as a mere man? Yeah, he's an important guy. He's an influential teacher. He's a significant historical figure. No, no, no. We cannot get away with that sort of half-hearted judgment here. There is no one on earth who shines like him. There is none on earth as glorious as he. And the call of this testimony on our lives is to acknowledge and own that Jesus is matchless. And if we would wake up to the unveiled glory of Jesus, our lives would never be the same. His supremacy and value exceed all relationships. His supremacy and value exceed all accomplishments, all desires, all possessions. Will it be known about Woodside Romeo that we have been gripped by the glory of Jesus? Will it be our reputation that we are stunned by the greatness of God revealed in the person of Jesus? How will we be known in our community? Oh yeah, that church, they've got a great building and they're adding on to it. Oh yeah, that church, awesome programs. What if it could be the first thing that comes to their minds is, man, those people are blown away by Jesus. It's like everything in their lives revolves around him. There is none like him. Will our lives reflect this truth? In the way we live, in the way we talk, in the way we serve, in the way we pray, in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way we do social media, in the way we do parenting, all of it. There is none on earth like Jesus. Wake up to his unveiled glory. That's who he is, matchless in glory. Secondly, wake up. And listen to the Christ. As remarkable as this experience is already to this point, we're still only two verses in to the story. Right after Jesus is transformed, though, Mark continues in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Like this is just a normal Tuesday. Moses and Elijah show up and we chat. But this is, this is likewise stunning because Moses and Elijah both have been long gone for centuries at this point. Moses lived around 1200 BC and Elijah around 900 BC. So once Peter, James, and John would be stunned to see this, and Mark actually mentions that in verse 6, they are indeed terrified. That's how shocked they are to be witnessing this scene. But what is the significance of Moses and Elijah? Mark doesn't give us an elaborate explanation of why these two are here. He just said they appeared and they were talking with Jesus. 
So to understand their significance, we have to look back at who both Moses and Elijah were. Each of these men were key figures in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And a big part of what made them so important is they spoke God's word to God's people. And furthermore, each one of them often received God's revelation on a mountain. So, for example, the Ten Commandments. These ten words were delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Similarly for Elijah, 1 Kings 19 is probably the most famous chapter from his life. 1 Kings 19 tells us about how Elijah fled from Jezebel for his life, and God led him up Mount Horeb. And there on the mountain, God spoke to Elijah, not in the strong wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in the sound of a low whisper. God promises Elijah on the top of that mountain that Baal and the other false gods will not win. And as bad as things had gotten in Israel, the Lord promises that there is still a remnant that remains. So here we are again. Elijah and Moses on top of a mountain. And what do you think we're here for? For God to speak. For God to reveal himself as he never has before. Moses and Elijah received much of God's revelation. And they spoke for God amazing things. But now... All of God's revelation from the past has culminated in the coming of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation. Moses and Elijah meet on this mountaintop to behold the word of God made flesh, Jesus. And what happens next drives this point home even further. Mark continues in verses 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, Peter, James, and John no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. With the transformation of Jesus, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, and now the divine voice speaking from the cloud, the three disciples must have been breathless, speechless. And several times in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people out of a cloud, as he does here. And God's message is short and to the point. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. For us, it may sound like old news. Oh yeah, Jesus, the Son of God, of course. But as far as we know, within the Gospel of Mark anyway, this is the first time the disciples hear about this. They knew he was the miracle worker from God. They had concluded that he was the Christ but this scene draws the focus even tighter on who Jesus is, the very Son of God. 
But the payoff of this declaration is not merely that we would know more facts about God, about Jesus, that he's the son. The payoff is that we listen to him. You know, you would think that listening would be pretty easy, right? I mean, it's not like we have to make our ears work. It's just the sound comes in and you've listened. But it's not always that easy, is it? We get distracted, we zone out, we get bored, whatever it is. And the words go in one ear and out the other. But another big problem with listening is not that we get distracted, zoned out, or bored. It's that we don't want to listen. We don't want to hear what's being said. So if you have little children, I'm certain you know this well. I was getting the opportunity to experience this at 6.30 this morning. I'll speak to our two-year-old. Charlie, go to the bathroom. Go number two on the potty. Okay, buddy? He doesn't want to hear it. I'm good, Dad. And he'll just sit on the pot for 15 minutes, finally take it off, and then boom, it all comes out. Children are such a blessing (laughs) and so gross. (laughs) But that's the biggest barrier to listening, is not wanting to listen. You know, as this series goes on, we are going to hear Jesus say, the Son of God say, some really hard things. He has some firm words, to say the least, about money about divorce, about sin and temptation. He's even got some difficult and disappointing words for the disciples before we finish this passage this morning. And we, like the disciples, are going to be tempted to do this. I don't want to hear it. So friends, I call on you now. Wake up and listen to the Christ. He is the heaven-sent Savior. He is the pinnacle of all God's revelation. He is the beloved Son of God. And what He has to say about your money and your marriage and your secret sins, it may not feel good. It may not be what you want to hear. But it's truth. And ultimately, listening to Him will lead you into blessing. Wake up to the unveiled glory of Jesus. Wake up and listen to the Christ. Finally, wake up to the reality of the suffering Messiah. Well, as this mountaintop scene ends, Jesus and his three disciples head back down. And you can imagine that the disciples are stoked to tell everybody about what they just saw. But in verse 9, Mark writes, Jesus charges them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the disciples decide to keep the matter to themselves, but they also start questioning What does he mean, rise from the dead? 
why does Jesus keep talking about dying? We just saw this heavenly revelation. We just heard the voice of God say that you're the beloved son of God. Jesus, the kingdom of God has come in power and you're the king. Why all this I've got to die stuff? And so out of their confusion, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Verse 11, Peter, James, and John ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah comes? Now, why would they express their confusion like this? Well, an important prophecy related to God's final victory over his enemies is from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi was a prophet from the Old Testament. Um, in fact, he's actually the last book collected in the Old Testament. And in chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi's prophecy, the Lord speaks through Malachi, and he says this, Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, as I said, Elijah lived around 900 B.C., way before the prophecy of Malachi. So Malachi was essentially saying that Elijah will come back right before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So now the disciples are thinking, Jesus, we just saw Elijah on the mountain. And don't the scribes say that Elijah comes first and then comes the great and awesome day of the Lord when all God's enemies are crushed? So again, why all this talk about dying? You're going to lead the charge on the great and awesome day of the Lord that's about to happen. You're not going to die. We're going to win. So Jesus responds, verses 12 and 13. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. So Jesus agrees that Elijah must come first, and he goes on to say that Elijah has already come. And we haven't talked about the Elijah-like prophet that shows up in Mark's gospel because we've jumped into the middle of the gospel here in chapters 8 through 10. But early on, Mark tells us about a man who prepared the way for Christ Jesus. He's well known as John the Baptist, a different John than John the disciple. In Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist called the people to repentance in preparation for Jesus' ministry, which was about to begin. And John was famous in the land for his preaching. Many came out to hear him. But King Herod was not a fan. Herod was the Roman-appointed ruler of Judea at the time, and he had entered into an unlawful marriage, and John called him to repent. Herod said, I don't want to hear it. So Herod threw John in jail and eventually had John beheaded. And all of that is recorded in Mark chapter 6. And so Jesus says, Elijah has come. 
And they did with him whatever they pleased. And it's going to be the same for me. The Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And if we thought the disciples were blown away on the mountaintop when they saw the glory of Jesus and Moses and Elijah and they heard the voice of God from the cloud, man, they were stunned. But now, they're even more blown away. The promised Messiah, the glorious Son of God, must die. You see, Jesus wants to press this truth into the hearts of those who are in his inner circle. Peter, James, and John have got to get this. Yes, there is more glory in store for us than we will ever know. There is a victory coming, and we can't imagine how satisfying it will be. But first, we take up our cross. First, we follow Jesus on the road to Calvary. First, we live lives of sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus is inviting Peter, James, and John into a life shaped by the cross. And he invites you. Wake up to the reality of a suffering Messiah. The Christian life is not easy. We are called, like Jesus, to consider others more significant than ourselves. We are called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but to lay down our rights, to lay down our preferences, to give up our conveniences for the good of others, just like Jesus did for you and me. On the cross, he took our place. Will you accept this invitation? into the cross-shaped life. It is not easy to do, but there is resurrection joy on the other side of this. Friends, listen to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are at once humbled at the grandness of your revelation in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much. You have not left us in the darkness. You have not left us unto confusion, but you have made yourself known. And even so, through the Lord Jesus, what an amazing scene we've witnessed. Father, we are similarly humbled to consider his call on our lives, a life of self-denial and sacrifice and cross-bearing and following him on the path to Jerusalem. Father, I pray that your spirit would stir in us and help us see the beauty of living a life formed and shaped by the cross so that others may flourish as we lay down our life for them. 
Father, I pray that your spirit would help us see in our own lives the way we need to give of ourselves for the sake of others. God, do this work in us so this church could be known by our sacrificial love. God, may we be the light of the world. May all the residents in Washington and Romeo and Armada and Alma and Rochester and all the rest, may they see in us the power of your gospel and the power of your spirit making us new, giving us life through your Holy Spirit. God, do this work as you are worthy and you are able. We trust you in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing one more song and declare the truth of our Savior God and the way he laid down his life for us on the cross. Let's sing.